Let us pray together. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Kinsman Redeemer. Amen. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. It is a 12-day festival. Uh, This is day three of the Christmas season. Uh, Christmas is a celebration of God becoming man. And all our different ways of celebrating this season, all the different ways that the, the church has developed over the years, the traditions the church has cultivated over the years for celebrating this great event are connected to the fact of the incarnation. We give gifts because God has given us the greatest gift of all, the gift of His Son, the gift of Himself. We feast together because the Word was made flesh. The Word became incarnate. The incarnation is the strongest possible affirmation of the goodness of creation and indeed the goodness of everything truly human. We decorate trees because Jesus is the tree of life and the fruits of the kingdom blossom from Him. All those ornaments on your Christmas tree in one way or another symbolize the benefits of Christ coming into the world. Benefits poured out abundantly on all people. We string up lights during this season. We light candles during this season because Jesus is the light of the world, shining into the darkness and indeed overcoming the darkness. Christmas is a festival of joy. It's a season of light and love and truth. It's a time when our fears are turned to joy, when we realize that God is going to fulfill our hopes. But the joy of Christmas is rooted in the most profound of theological mysteries. What keeps all of our celebrations from really disintegrating into a kind of sentimentalism is remembering the theological foundations at the root of this. The the theological mysteries that stand at the heart of Christmas. Christmas is a a once-a-year opportunity to revisit and brush up on some key Christian doctrines, core Christian doctrines which undergird the whole gospel story, the good news. Christmas is a celebration of a miraculous birth, a virgin birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb and then nine months later she gave birth. Jesus has a divine father and a human mother. Now, secularists, especially this time of year, like to point out that the whole Christian faith must be a myth. It's horribly unscientific because, after all, everybody knows that virgins can't give birth. I think we need to push back. Every year I see these articles that come out making this kind of claim. I think we need to push back against it. See, those same secularists who mock Christians for believing in the virgin birth of Jesus actually believe in the virgin birth of the universe. They believe the universe just popped into existence on its own. See, secularists believe that matter came from nothing. That life came from what is not living. That what is conscious and rational came from what is not conscious or rational. That what is ordered and designed came from that which was not ordered or designed. That that which has dignity and morality came from that which is not dignified or moral. 
In other words, secularists have to posit a series of miracles really with no supporting evidence. It's one leap of blind faith after another. There's nothing more unscientific than secularism. Raw, pure secularism. The Christian admits this is a miracle. This was an utterly unique, unusual event. There was one miraculous birth, one virgin birth, when Jesus was born of Mary. And Christians say, look, the same divine power that created the world in the first place created life in the womb of Mary. The same personal God who created the world created life in the womb of the virgin. And further, Christians claim that really the whole gospel hinges on this virgin birth. This is not just a throwaway doctrine for Christians. This is essential to the gospel. There is no good news without it. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if He was conceived in the ordinary way, there would be no reason to think that He is the Son of God. If Jesus had a biological Father, there would certainly be no reason to think He was sinless, and therefore no reason to think He is fit to be a sacrifice to cover our sin. See, the mystery and miracle of Christmas begins in Mary's womb. Christmas is all about the virgin birth. But that means Christmas is really also all about the Incarnation. In fact, the virgin birth and the Incarnation are really corollaries of one another. They stand or fall together. See, the issue is not just how He was conceived, but who was conceived. Christmas is full of joy and laughter, not just because it points us to a squirming baby. We know how babies always bring great joy. But more than that, Christmas is full of joy and laughter because it tells us that baby in the manger is God Himself. The jaw-dropping joy of Christmas is found in this truth. A truth that is so profound, even so ridiculous it would seem. We can't fathom it. We can't really even comprehend it. I mean, it's one thing to celebrate the birth of a child. That happens all the time in every culture around the world. It's something quite different to celebrate the birth of a baby who is God in the flesh. But that's what the Incarnation means. This is what Christmas celebrates. The Incarnation means Jesus is fully God and fully man. Oh sure, God had come to visit His people before. God appeared in various ways at various times to His people throughout their history. God had come to visit His people appearing in the burning bush. He appeared to them in the angel of the Lord. He came to deliver His people out of Egypt. He came to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle appearing as the Shekinah glory. God had appeared in a multitude of ways to His people, but God had never done this. This was something new. God had never become human before. God had never put on skin. God had never appeared in the flesh. And what's most astounding is the way in which He comes to us. Christmas means not just that God became human, as astounding as that is, but God became a baby. The eternal God had a birthday. That's what Christmas is. God's birthday. It sounds astounding just to, to, to put those words together that way. But that's what Christmas is. It is the beginning of the human life of God. God's biography, if I can speak that way, God's biography now includes human chapters in the Son's life as a man. 
Now, because this is so astounding, there have always been people who have objected to the Incarnation, not on secular grounds, we've already talked about that, but actually on theological grounds. They've said, how can this be? How can God become human? How can what is infinite be contained by what is finite? How could God become a baby? How could God need His diaper changed? If you want to consider the absurdity of it. Surely God is above and beyond all of that. Surely God's not going to entangle Himself in the messiness of creation in that way. But this is precisely the claim that the Gospels make. God has taken up our humanity into His own divine life. God has assumed a human nature to Himself. And so God has experienced human life in all its fullness. God has experienced human infancy, human childhood, human hunger and thirst, human suffering, even human death. See, Jesus doesn't live a double life. I think sometimes we as Christians think of it this way. We think of Jesus as living a double life. Sometimes He acts as God. Sometimes He acts as man. Sometimes His deity pops out to the surface. Sometimes He just looks like an ordinary man. Jesus doesn't live a double life that way. He's not schizophrenic. Sometimes acting as God, sometimes acting as man. No, everything He does from His conception onwards, He does as the God-man. The incarnation means God participates in our humanity in its fullness. That's why Jesus truly is God with us. Jesus is God with us because Jesus is God as one of us. Again, this is what is so amazing about Christmas. God who created the world joins Himself to His creation. The Creator becomes a creature. C.S. Lewis talked about this in terms of a playwright writing himself into his script and then taking center stage. The God who created the family tree of Abraham became a branch on that family tree with a genuine human lineage. Again, he has a divine father and a human mother. He is God of God and man of man. Two natures in one person. He has human DNA. And He is of the same substance and divine nature as His Father. Everything Jesus does, He does as the God-man. And as the God-man, He does what man must do but could not do. And He does what only God could do and had promised to do. And so as the God-man, He becomes our Savior. There would be no other way for us to be saved, but by the Incarnation. The Son of God took to Himself a human nature without ceasing to be divine in any way in order to redeem us. The Incarnation, as we confess in the Creed, is for us and for our salvation. That's what Christmas celebrates. An event so unique, an event so miraculous, there's really no analogy to it. Perhaps the only thing that could be comparable to it would be the creation of the universe in the beginning. Christmas is all about the humanity of God and the humility of God. Christmas is about God coming to be with us by becoming one of us. And indeed, He comes to be with us in the most unexpected of ways and in the most unexpected of places. Christmas is about God the Son becoming the Son of Mary so that sons of men might become sons 
of God. And again, without the Incarnation, there is no Gospel. Without the Incarnation, all the good news unravels. If Jesus was fully God but not true man, then God is still distant from us. If Jesus was fully man but not true God, then we are still distant from God. Only because He is God and man can He reconcile us to God and join us to God. Because Jesus is God and man, He unites God to us and us to God. He opens up God's life to humanity and He opens up humanity to God. In Jesus, union and communion between God and man is restored and reestablished. In Jesus, heaven kisses earth. Divinity kisses humanity. In Jesus, God and humanity become one flesh. God becomes bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh so that we can become bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. Nobody had ever talked about God the way the early Christians did. This is why the early church, those first few centuries, the the apostles and their successors, why the church was so radical, it was so different. Nobody had ever talked this way about God. And nobody has since either. Christmas was the start of something radical and revolutionary. Think about it. What did those early Christians affirm? They affirmed God had existed from all eternity, yet in the Incarnation, God now has a birthday. Christians affirm God is Lord over all, yet in the Incarnation, The Christians confess Mary to be the mother of God. Mary to be the God-bearer. Christians confess that God is omnipotent, and yet in the Incarnation, God has revealed Himself in weakness, in the manger as a baby, and then on the cross as a crucified man. Christians affirm God cannot suffer, and yet in the Incarnation, God has endured suffering and even death. Christians affirm God dwells in heaven, in light unapproachable, and yet in the Incarnation, God has come to earth. The light has approached us. Christians affirm God is a spirit and has not a body like men, and yet in the Incarnation, God took a created body to Himself forever. Christians affirm not even the highest heavens can contain God, but in the Incarnation, God was contained in the womb of Mary for nine months. In one way after another, this incredible truth presses itself on us. And no, we cannot fully comprehend it. It is a mystery. Think about what the Apostle Paul says about this in 1 Timothy 3. Christians have always spoken this way about the Incarnation. Paul says there, Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. This is a great mystery. Christmas celebrates this mystery, this wonder, this joy behind all the presents and the lights and the trees and the turkeys stands this great mysterious reality of the virgin birth of the incarnate God. Now, in Luke chapter 2, Luke tells us this whole story, the whole story of Jesus' birth, the birthday of God. The birthday of God in the flesh. He tells us about the time when God became small. And Luke shows us, sometimes in really obvious ways, sometimes in much more subtle ways, who Jesus is and what He came to do. I want us to look at Luke 2 this way. I want us to look at it the way that 
ESPN on SportsCenter looks at a football game. All right, lots of football games this time of year. You can't watch all of them, so some of them you just got to do what? Catch the highlights on SportsCenter, right? And that's what we're going to do with Luke 2. I'm not going to give you the play-by-play. I'm going to give you the highlight read. The highlights here in Luke chapter 2. What are the highlights? What are the high points in Luke 2? As Luke tells us this story of God's birthday. Well, Luke begins with Caesar's decree. This is really the setup for the whole story. Caesar wants to register his subjects. Caesar is so drunk with his own power, so arrogant. He thinks all the the subjects of his realm belong to him in such a way that he can move them about wherever he wants them. And so he wants to register his subjects. But it's really important to note how Luke begins this story. He does not begin by saying, once upon a time. He does not begin by saying, long, long ago in a galaxy far away. Or in a Galilee far away, as I heard somebody put it this week. Luke shows us this story is not some kind of self-contained myth. It's not some kind of fictionalized account. This story intersects with real history. That's why you've got these time signatures here. You can put a date on this. You could stamp a date on this event. You've got kings and rulers identified. You've got places identified. The place Mary and Joseph are from. The place they have to go to, which is identified as Bethlehem, the city of David. This story doesn't take place in Narnia or in Hogwarts or in Middle Earth. This story takes place in places that you can visit today. Luke wants us to know that the birth of Jesus took place on a real day in a real city. This is real history. But at the same time, I think as Luke sets this out, he is showing us something about Caesar over and against Jesus. You know, it looks like all the power is on Caesar's side. Caesar's empire seems to rule over all. Caesar's empire had conquered the Middle East. That's something not even the American empire can accomplish. And yet Caesar did it. Caesar had full control of the Middle East. Imagine that, a time when the Middle East was under imperial control. And Caesar's in in such control, he can move all the pieces around the map wherever he wants them. At the beginning of the story, Caesar looks big and Jesus looks small. But Luke is going to show us by the end of this story that appearances aren't everything. It looks like Caesar has all the power. It looks like Mary and Joseph are just pawns of Caesar's. But Luke wants us to see there is a greater power than Caesar's at work. Behind Caesar's decree, there is the decree of the Lord God Almighty. Now because of Caesar's rule, Joseph and Mary have to travel to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem, a well-known city in Israel's history, but a small city. Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, Bethlehem is identified multiple times in this chapter as the city of David. Now, this wasn't a terribly long journey, but it still would have been a difficult journey to make. If you think your holiday travels were difficult, uh, this journey was even more difficult. As an expectant mother, uh, Mary would have had a hard time making this trip. It would have been difficult for Joseph to take an expecting wife with him on this trek. And of course, this is all to satisfy the demands of an oppressive government. They're not going to visit family and celebrate something the way we are when we travel this time of year. This is just to satisfy the demands of an oppressive regime. Well, they make their way to Bethlehem. They go to the city of David. And the fact that Luke 
identifies this place as the city of David is very telling. Right off the bat, you've got Caesar, but then you've also got Jesus being linked with David, with Israel's greatest king. Right out of the gate, we see there's going to be a connection between Jesus and David. And no doubt, too, for careful readers of the Scriptures, Bethlehem would have called to mind that passage in Micah chapter 5, where one of the prophets, many, many centuries before, had declared that the promised king, the promised Messiah, would arise from Bethlehem. Well, Luke tells us that when they got to Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And so she gave birth, but not in a comfortable home, but in a manger. She placed her child in a manger. Now, this is definitely also a highlight. Jesus is born in a place where animals are kept. And He's laid to rest in a place where animals feed. And I think Luke wants us to see here what's going on. This is already a clue as to why Jesus came. Jesus was born to be the bread of life. He is the true manna that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. He will be the sacrificial feast for God's people. And so since Jesus is food, food for the hungry, what better place to put Him than in a feeding trough for animals in a city whose name means house of bread. In fact, it's fitting, I think, for Jesus to be in a place where animals are because He came to fulfill and bring to an end all the animal sacrifices. What the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish in the washing away of sin, Jesus will accomplish by His once and for all sacrifice on the cross. He's going to bring an end to animal sacrifice. He's born in a place where lambs would be. Because He came to be the Passover Lamb. He came to be our peace offering. The One whose death would liberate us from bondage, from slavery to sin and death. The One who through death would turn away the curse of death. Now, Luke tells us nothing of the particular animals that were present there. He doesn't say anything about the animals. It's just suggested there. Of course, Christian artists and poets have picked up on this scene and run with it and filled it in in all kinds of ways. And while I think we need to be really careful about that, I think there's something also inevitable about that. It is very interesting in so much early Christian artwork, this scene is depicted with Jesus and His parent, you know, Mary and Joseph, and then an ox and a donkey. The ox and the donkey are there almost as often as Mary and Joseph are there in the scene. Hymns have picked up on this. How many hymns talk about an ox and a donkey or an ox and an ass being with Jesus in the manger? And that's because Christians realize that this scene, this setting, tells us so much about why Jesus came. You have an ox and a donkey, a clean animal and an unclean animal. Why? Because Jesus came to reconcile Jew and Gentile to each other through His sacrifice on the cross. The clean, the Jews, and the unclean, the Gentiles, we brought together through His sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, An ox and a donkey know their master, but Israel does not know her God. Perhaps in some strange way, that passage in Isaiah connects with the manger scene. Certainly, Israel did not recognize baby Jesus as her Lord and as her God. 
But the ox and the donkey were there present with him when he was born. Well, who hears of this birth first? This is certainly another highlight here. Mary and Joseph don't send out birth announcements. The angels do that work for them. But to whom do the angels go? An angel appears to shepherds outside of Bethlehem, a group of shepherds watching over their flocks at night. And verse 9 tells us, as this first angel appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone around. Now think about that. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. This has to be a highlight. This has to make the highlight real. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelt in the most holy place in the temple. The most holy place was that place where heaven and earth came together. The place where the glory of God dwelt on earth. If that glory is now shining on the shepherds, it can only mean one thing. This child who has been born has come to open heaven. He has come to unlock the most holy place. He has come to tear the veil. He's come to unleash the Shekinah glory. And in so doing, He will make all His people into priests. Even lowly shepherds, shepherds who were ceremonially unclean because they worked with animals all the time, even shepherds will be priests who have access to the Shekinah glory. This baby who has been born has come to make His people holy servants of God with access to holy space, with access to the Shekinah glory, with access to the true most holy place. It can't mean anything else for the glory of the Lord, for the glory of God to shine upon the shepherds. Those shepherds represent the people of God. They represent the nation of Israel. They see the glory of the Lord shining all about them because the glory of the Lord is being revealed. Soon the whole nation will see the glory of God in Jesus. Soon all the people will have access to the heavenly sanctuary where angels and archangels and all the company of heaven dwell. Soon all of God's people will have this kind of access through this child who has been born. He came to open heaven to open the gates of heaven so that all who trust in Him might enter and see that same Shekinah glory and dwell in that same unapproachable light. Well, this one angel begins the announcement, but then a whole host of angels erupt together in song. It's really an army of angels. A squadron of angels has been sent out to these shepherds. A, a platoon of angels appears to these shepherds in the night sky. And just as there was glorious musical praise at the temple, so there is glorious musical praise here. That's really what this is. A temple scene with the Shekinah glory and the cherubim and the angels and now the shepherds functioning as priests with access to the most holy place. The angels sing. Job tells us that the angels sang when the foundation of the creation was laid. Now the angels sing again as the foundation of a new creation is laid. They sang at the beginning of the creation. The book of Job tells us that. Now they sing again at the beginning of a new creation. And their song is yet another highlight. They sing glory to God and peace on earth 
And I think that's actually a good summary of why Jesus came. Really, a splendid summary of the whole Gospel message. Why did Jesus come? To bring glory to God in heaven and to bring peace to men on earth. Glory and peace. Those are the key words here in this psalm. Glory ascending from earth to heaven and peace descending from heaven to earth. Christmas is about His glory and our peace. The greatest revelation of God's glory is found in baby Jesus and the coming of this child will bring peace to God's people. In fact, when the angel speaks of a, of a child being given to you, he's really echoing the language of Isaiah 9 where the Lord says, For unto you a son is given... A child is born. Isaiah 9 goes on to prophesy of this child. says of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus came to bring an ever-increasing, never-ending peace. You, know, you look at the world around us and you might think, well, where is this peace? It seems the world is getting worse and worse and worse. But how can you look at the Bible and not think that it's going to get better and better and better? Oh sure, there are ups and downs over the course of history, but Jesus came to bring an ever-increasing peace. In other words, He came to answer our biggest question. He came to solve our biggest problem. Ever since the creation of the world, since man fell into sin shortly thereafter, what has the biggest problem been? It has been the lack of peace. Creation lacks Shalom. Sin wrecked shalom. Sin stole away the shalom. Creation lacks peace. Jesus came to solve that problem. He came to usher in a reign of peace. Peace between God and man. Peace between man and man. And peace between man and the creation. Well, the angels also give this child a name. He is to be called Christ the Lord. They say in verse 11, Christ meaning anointed one. He is the one who will have the Holy Spirit poured out on Him in all its fullness. He's the Lord. Luke has already used this title, Lord, multiple times in the first chapter in his Gospel. And every single time that name, that title, Lord, is used in Luke chapter 1, every single time it refers to God, to the true God, to the Lord of Israel. When the angels use that title here, it must be the same. They are announcing this baby born to Mary is the Lord incarnate. He is the Lord clothed in human flesh. Who is Jesus? God in the form of a baby. That's what the angels are announcing. And then at the end of the story, what do we find? The angels have heard this song. The shepherds have heard this song of the angels. The shepherds go to the manger. They find it just as the angels had announced them. They said, you will see a sign. They see that sign. What happens to the shepherds? What do we find at the end of the story? The shepherds are doing their part. They're functioning as priests. They become missionaries and teachers and evangelists. They are telling others the good news. They're praising God and rejoicing. The shepherds are doing their part. What do we find at the end of the story with Mary? Mary is doing her part. She's pondering these things and meditating on these things. And of course, both are models for us. We need to ponder these truths like Mary and we need to go tell others like the shepherds. We need to be theologians like Mary, 
mulling these things over until we more fully understand them. And we need to be missionary priests like the shepherds, announcing this good news to others and praising God. Well, what's the upshot of all of this? When, when you get down to it, what does Christmas really mean for us? Why is this story so joyous? So spectacularly joyous? Well, we all know how exciting it is when an underdog wins the big game. I mean, unless your favorite team is the favorite, right? We all know how exciting it is for the underdog to win the big game. The unexpectedness of it, the surprise of it, multiplies the joy. Now think about this. Who, going into battle, and not just any battle, but a battle for humanity, indeed, a battle for the cosmos, who, going into battle, would send a baby? Who sends a baby into battle? Who sends a baby to the front lines of the battle? Well, God does. That's who. God has chosen to come in this form. God has chosen to win through weakness, to triumph through humility. Think of all the great stories where evil is defeated through weakness and sacrifice. This is not really a motif in the ancient world. It's the gospel that made this a, a, a kind of epic story that gets told and retold in all different kinds of ways. I mean, think about Star Wars. You know, Star Wars is all the rage right now, right? I, I haven't seen the new movie yet, but think about one of the old movies. Think about the fourth movie in the series where Obi-Wan Kenobi is battling Darth Vader. And he tells Vader... If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And at a key moment, as they're having this lightsaber battle, Obi-Wan drops his guard. He lowers his guard and lets Vader strike him down. And what happens afterward? He does become more powerful than Vader could have imagined. He's able to spiritually guide his disciple Luke to destroy the Death Star. He's able to spiritually guide his apprentice to victory because he sacrificed himself. He gave himself away in weakness and it led to the victory. Okay, now you can go tell all your friends that your pastor used a Star Wars illustration and so you go to one of the cool churches in town, right? Okay. But it's not, it's not just that. I mean, it's story after story after story. All of our epic stories now work this way because of the Gospel. Think of the Lord of the Rings. It's not a Christian allegory, but it's... It's deeply filled with Christian motifs and imagery. You've got the hobbits who are the smallest and weakest and humblest of all creatures in Middle-earth. And yet they're the ones who defeat the mighty Sauron. Unexpected victors, unexpected champions doing it in an unexpected way. Rather than seizing the ring of power and using it for themselves, they sacrifice themselves in order to destroy it. They win the victory not by grasping for power, but by renouncing. The battle is won by the underdog who uses his weakness as a weapon. Or think about Harry Potter. Harry Potter is still a boy, still a young boy, but he saves his friends not by trying to overpower Voldemort, with superior wizardry or skill, but rather by allowing Voldemort to kill him. Sacrificial love defeats the curse. Sacrificial love throws up a shield of protection over all of Harry's friends 
Harry masters death by dying. Okay, what do you have in all of these stories? These, these mythical stories resonate with us. They, they strike a chord deep in our hearts and in our souls because they echo the true story of the Gospel. See, how has God won His great victory? How has God defeated sin and Satan and death? What weapons has God wielded? A baby in a manger and a naked man hanging on a cross. The manger and the cross. That's how God wins. It's power through weakness. It's life through death. It's honor through humility. It's glory through sacrifice. It's victory through defeat. It's riches through poverty. That, my friend, is the joy and the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. Christmas is about joy. Joy is all over the place in Luke chapter 1 and 2. It seems every other emotion people have, whether it's fear or wonder, whatever it might be, it eventually resolves into joy. Mary rejoices in chapter 1 when Gabriel tells her she will have a child. John the Baptist rejoices in Elizabeth's womb when he draws near to Jesus who is in Mary's womb. He dances and leaps for joy. The angels announce glad tidings of great joy to the shepherds. The shepherds go out rejoicing and praising God. Mary quietly hides this joy in her heart. See, this Christmas, join in the joy. Join in the laughter of God the Father. Join in the song of the angels. Join in the worship of the shepherds. Join in the meditations of Mary. Rejoice in Jesus, born of a woman, and come to die for our sins and rise again in victory. Let's give God thanks. Father, we do thank You that in sending Jesus into the world, You sent joy into the world. Joy unspeakable. You became, You sent Your Son and Your Son became small so that we might have Big and great joy. Joy unspeakable so that our hearts might burst with the joy of this good news. May it be so to us this Christmas season and indeed throughout the whole course of our lives that we might radiate with a joy that only Christ and His Gospel can give. This we pray in His name. Amen. Let us stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, beloved Son, and mighty Spirit, our God, let every nation delight in the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for this nation, for the United States. Grant wisdom to President Obama and his administration, members of both houses of Congress and the Supreme Court. Not all of our leaders possess faith, so we pray for their conversion. Help them to sacrifice their lives and show how all men should continually repent of wicked ways, turn towards you, and serve one another. Rule with your rod of iron, Lord, and end legalized abortions. Defend the defenseless, the poor, and the neglected in our nation. Call prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners to eat at your table. We pray for the world. Spread your fame over all the earth. Help, Lord, refugees from Middle Eastern countries and persecuted Christians around the world to endure. Answer their sufferings with triumph over evil and the reign of peace. 
We, Lord, by declaration of the King's authoritative word, are your people. You give us the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Strengthen us who love you, your brothers, sisters, and mother, who do the will of God to preach your word. May the gospel grow up your kingdom, increase and yield a 30, 60, or a hundredfold crop in good soil. Bless the Theophilus Institute with financial supporters, new students, and strong relationships with local pastors and people in our community. Help this church to honor you with our lips and to love you from a pure heart. Open our ears to receive your teaching. Restore our eyes to see your glory with increasing clarity. And loosen our tongues to confess Jesus is the Christ. Set our minds on God's interest, not on man's. Fill our hunger for righteousness. Give us peace with one another. Help us to pray in the Holy Spirit on all occasions. Maintain the flavor of our saltiness. We bring even little children to you. May we not cause anyone to stumble. Yes, prevent us from becoming a den of robbers, but instead build us up as the house of God. Loosen our tongues to deliver the message of the scriptures and to make Christ's reign known. Shield us from our enemies and lead us along his way of wisdom and righteousness and peace. Anoint with the Holy Spirit all ministers of your gospel, especially all CREC ministers and churches of Athanasius Presbytery, our close circle of brothers and sisters, but also all your pastors serving in many denominations. Make healthy the local churches so people may gather together to worship and honor you. Great physician, reach out your hand and heal our sick and afflicted people. We pray for health and strength for Debbie Woods, Ashley Hamblin, Miles Harrison, Lindsay Scogan, Kia Shoku, Ashton Motes, Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, Finley Evans' friend struggling with MS, and for our aging parents and grandparents, Blanche Laughlin and Kathleen Duquette's mother. We pray for all battling cancer, for Brenda Jordans, for Tammy, Tim Hamblin's sister, for Kendall Touchton's father, Devin Tarter, Joanne Perry, Sylvia Douglas, Gregory Morris, Martha Goodwin, Patsy Sadler, and Nathan Hamilton, and for others. Lord, increase our faith in your care, and so we may seek you in prayer. Calm our fears, and in your mercy, amaze us by doing great things for us. You even astound us by raising life up from death. Have compassion upon mankind, and provide your body, even for those who behave like sheep without a shepherd. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us. And now hear us as we pray the prayer your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 